Hello, everybody, and welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here, and I'm joined by Don, as usual. Today, we're going to be talking about the great state of Albania and its leader, Enver Hoxha, uh, maybe a few other things. We're joined by our good friend, Ismail. He comes from the eregime.org games site. Uh, that's where I know him from, at least. Uh, you may have also seen him around Rev Left. I know you're kind of active on some of those things, Ismail. Um, in fact, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? What are your interests in... Well, uh, I'm Ismail, obviously, and uh, my interests are history, uh, history of socialist countries, history of Marxist uh, ideology, how it came about, its relationship to uh, earlier ideologies like uh, Charles Fourier, Robert Owen, and so on. And uh, my interest in Albania stemmed from my interest in the socialist movement and how Albania, the one country that sort of acted as a maverick, as sort of doing its own thing, that's where my initial in, initial fascination came from. Sure. Yeah. So Albania was like, uh, was a very, I guess, orthodox is the right word to use. Like if it really stuck to its uh, ideological guns for. Yeah. It was like the premier, like anti-revisionist state. That's how it saw itself as the one outpost of like true Marxism, Leninism in the world. Yeah. And being such a small country that kind of led to, uh, you know, interesting developments, complications. Yeah. Yes, it did. And uh, one example, of course, is isolation. Uh, Alba Albania refused to establish any diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union after, after it got broke off in like 1961. And when the relationship broke off with China in like 1978, again, they they didn't completely cut off relations with China, but that was basically the end. All the aid that China had sent, all the aid the Soviet Union had sent in earlier years, by 1979, that was gone and Albania was basically on its own, had no real benefactor. Right. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's kind of an interesting story in that way because yeah, like the total isolation. I guess that's what most people know. They also, if they don't know that, uh, I mean, if they don't know much more than that, it's also maybe the pillboxes people always bring up. You know, the the bunkers. The bunkers yeah. Um, which uh, I don't know. I always felt like a little bit sympathetic about that. You know, because people kind of go a little too hard against it. For me, I'm like, you know, if they were that isolated, you know, maybe it was reasonable to think that. Uh, someone would invade them. Maybe they wouldn't have been that effective. But, you know, it's it's funny because uh, you also see a lot of people on the far left always talking about, uh, you know, rifle clubs and all these things and stuff about, like, building community militias and all that. And I'm like, it's sort of the same kind of logic of, like... Yeah, Albania, Albania didn't have a huge army, obviously. In fact, it relied yeah. on what's called people's war. It had its own doctrines. People would be uh, required to... Uh attend military training and things like that yeah it was a very highly militarized situation there because they, they couldn't rely on the normal army so it's almost like a switzerland kind of mentality I, it, but if you said it in that term uh i think people oh, would yeah. you know you know it's yeah it's, they'd be, oh okay all right yeah switzerland a bunch of mountains that's cool but when albania has mountains <laughs> oh my god you insane freaks you <laughs> masterminds uh, you know it doesn't matter it's just weird things sure. yeah yeah yeah, I, I mean, I've always thought it made sense, too, because it's like a very cheap thing to make these concrete bunkers. You know, the, I, I guess the issue is like, do you want to be that isolated and stuff in the first place? But once you're in that position, that's a really sensible thing to do. You're not going to win like in a straight up fight against any invading army, but you can really be a pain in the butt for them once they are there and occupying. Yeah, that was just yeah, bunkers yeah. everywhere. Yeah, exactly. 
the strategy was basically the bunkers and the, the normal army would hold off any invaders, and then the citizens would go into the mountains and basically recreate World War II where they're fighting with the partisans and things like that, sort of like in Yugoslavia with Tito. You know, same thing. Albania, Albania's communists did the same thing in World War II with partisans against the uh, Italian and German occupiers. That was the idea. All right. Um, maybe we want to backtrack a little bit and uh, maybe you could tell us how Albania became socialist and how it be- adopted this particular bent where it was very uh, isolated even from the Soviet Union? All right. Well, that's very easy. Uh, Albania historically was occupied by a lot of different countries. And in 1912, when its independence was proclaimed by Ismail Kemal, which is how I you know, I got my username because I, I was really fascinated with Albanian history, uh, it continued to be occupied by other countries. Uh, as soon as it declared dependence, the, the great powers, Britain, France, and so on, basically said, ha-ha, it's Albania, who cares, and just allowed Serbia, Greece, Italy to just d- try to divide up the country. So Albanians themselves didn't really have a say in the matter, and they felt hopeless, as uh, any tiny country usually would be. And uh, eventually in 1920, when they did manage to get independence and uh, some degree of territorial unity, uh, they had to deal with the fact that not only were they isolated, but... uh, they had uh, a very backwards economy. They had a very backwards social structure. The North was tribal, basically. The South was uh, landowners who were feudal. Uh, and Central Albania, again, was mostly just feudal landowners. And uh, that, well, quite frankly, that's not a good basis to build an economy or build a society. And a lot of younger people in Albania were inspired by the Bolsheviks. And they were inspired by them because they uh, unleashed the... Uh, took out the secret treaties from the Tsarist archives after World War One, and said, hey, you know, the uh, the allies in World War One were going to divide Albania. They were going to partition Albania. We had the documents here to prove it. And so a bunch of younger people in Albania decided, hey, Lenin is the savior of Albania. Oh, my God. In fact, when Lenin, when Lenin died, uh, the, the leader of the youth movement in Albania, the Democratic Youth Movement, uh, Avni Rustem, he was called, even delivered a... Uh, a memorial speech in the in the legislature, which outraged a lot of the conservative deputies in there. But uh, you know, just the fact that that happened shows that there was a lot of uh, admiration for the Bolsheviks, even if their ideology wasn't exactly followed. Then, in 1924, came uh, the rise of uh, the Fan Noli government, which was supposed to be anti-feudal. It was supposed to carry out land reform. It was supposed to do all these great democratic things. Uh, but then internal differences intervened and ruined that. And, of course, external-backed counter-revolution uh, led by Ahmed Zagu, who, um, you know, King Zag, he would later become, uh, was backed by the Serbians. And the Serbians, along with white Russian uh, forces, overthrew the Fanoli government in 1924, December 1924, and uh, installed Zagu to power. And Zagu was a tribal chieftain himself. He was representative of the large landowners of Albania. He kept Albania uh, backwards and isolated. And eventually he became uh, a puppet of Italy, of fascist Italy. And by 1939, Albania was so dependent on Italy for everything, its finances, its investments, uh, its army, that Mussolini really had no trouble invading the country and just taking it over. And uh, that's when the communist movement started to uh, arise because uh, in 1941, with Yugoslav help, with the help of the Communist Party of Yugoslavia, they decided that they needed uh, a communist party in Albania. 
Albania was the only Balkan country without a communist party until 1941. It was divided into tiny groups that were feuding with each other over doctrinal differences and so on. So Tito's uh, emissaries went to uh, Albania, knocked together a single communist party, and they needed a Muslim background person to lead the party because most of the communists happened to be Christian backgrounds. And that's how Enver Hoxha came about. That's how they decided, okay, this Enver Hoxha guy, he's young. He hasn't been involved in any doctrinal disputes between the groups. He's a newcomer. Let's have him be the leader of the party for now, at least. And that's how Enver Hoxha came about. And of course, during World War II, a resistance moon formed, led by the communists. Uh, they defeated the occupiers. They also defeated the other non-communist groups that claimed to be resistance fighters. But as time wore on, more often than not, they were actually collaborating with the occupiers against the communists because the communists were seen as ultimately the bigger threat. Because after World War II was over, they would have to contend with the communists. So yeah, and that's right. how the communists won, basically. So Hoja was was just like some random person? He actually wasn't involved in uh, the communist groups. Officially, if you read the official histories uh, presented by the government back then, of course, they would portray him as this great old, great revolutionary, even before <laughs> yeah. 1939. Sure. But he was mostly aloof until the Italian occupation of Albania. That's when he really started to get involved in the communist movement. He joined one of the groups. And uh, the communists decided, okay, this guy will be good. He's educated. He was educated in France. He's not familiar with any of the factional differences between the groups, so he'd be a good unifying candidate. Uh, and also the fact that he was educated, the fact that he could speak and write pretty well made him ideal for editing the newspaper, the party's official newspaper, Ziri I Populit, a voice of the people. So basically that's how that came about. He became leader of the party. Wow. So, yeah, I mean... So in the immediate sort of aftermath of that in 1945, I guess, uh, is this is this like a situation where like did the Soviets ever actually occupy Albania or was no, it just it never came there? In fact, as in Yugoslavia, which did have a Soviet help, help towards the end, uh, but as in Yugoslavia, Albania, Albania's resistance movement mostly had British backing because the British saw the communists fighting the occupiers. That's all they cared about during World War II. They sure. saw the other non-communist groups collaborating more often than not with the occupiers. So they figured, hey, even though these are not communists, they're not actually fighting the Germans, so they're really no no use to us. So they would send supplies to the communists especially since the communists claimed that they were fighting a broad struggle. They weren't just communists. They were a national liberation movement of communists and non-communists uh, allied together against fascism. So it was easy for the British to justify that at the time because, you know, fighting the Germans was the priority. So huh. that's how uh, that happened. I didn't know that. That's pretty interesting. I mean, honestly, a lot of the time when you look at these like historical moments where something like this happens, it's not as simple as just like, one group has an idea and they just win and then they implement their idea. There's a lot of like cooperation with, you know, this sort there's of conflicted cooperation. There's always more complexity. There's always more uh, yeah. differences between groups and individuals and things like that. It's, it's never a very easy situation. Yeah, for sure. And then, so after World War II and uh, once like, so Yugoslavia is sort of setting up its state and things like that, uh, is that, how did that rivalry kind of start? Like I, did did Tito want uh, Albania 
to be part of Yugoslavia or that was, that's that that was the idea that was the actually the original intention that uh, Kosovo which is a region inhabited mostly by Albanians nowadays would become part of Albania within Yugoslavia within a seventh republic of Yugoslavia which was supposed to be you know Albania and the reason the split happened was in the first place Tito had basically controlled the communist party of Albania from its founding in 1941 by the mere fact that uh emissaries from Tito were responsible for forming the party. They were responsible for making decisions in the party because the communists in Albania were very inexperienced. As I said, Enver Hoxha himself, even though he was highly educated, he wasn't really involved in the communist movement in Albania until the Italians invaded. So this inexperience meant that the two Yugoslav uh, emissaries were the ones basically calling the shots when it came to big decisions, like, okay, let's form the National Liberation Movement, let's form the National Army, let's form a provisional government. That w- Those were basically Yugoslav decisions, and they were patented after the Yugoslav Partisan Army, the Yugoslav Provisional Government. That's why if you look at Albania and Yugoslavia during the war, there's a lot of similarities between how their governments function, how their the local councils liberation functioned and so on and the same attitude towards the non-communist resistance movements which again they mostly collaborate with the occupiers but the communists said we're the ones who are truly fighting for freedom and the independence of the country the uh, the, resi- the other non-communist are collaborators as they usually were yeah basically the same strategy the same tactics were done in albania as in yugoslavia that's how that played out. So after World War II, Albania was seen as sort of a dependent state on Yugoslavia. When the Communist Information Bureau formed, aka the Common Form, which in 1947 there, uh, the Communist Party of Albania wasn't even invited to the Common Form founding because they figured the Communist Party of Yugoslavia could just handle its affairs just as well. They figured that Albania would eventually be incorporated. And the problem inside the party was that Enver Hoxha and a few others were identified by the Yugoslavs as nationalists, as petty bourgeois, whereas another faction led by uh, the uh, interior minister, the in charge of security, Kochi Dizodzi, that was his name, uh, this was associated with Yugoslavia. He was associated with... Uh, incorporating the economy and society and the state uh, into Yugoslavia. And Vahoja was seen as being reluctant to do that, even though publicly everything until the split between Stalin and Tito seemed fine. Everything seemed fine until that point. Publicly, Enver Hoxha was praising Yugoslavia. You would have portraits of Stalin and Tito together in Albania. There was just like, oh, we're best friends. We're fraternal allies. We fought together against fascism. Everything seemed to be fine. But behind the scenes, it was a different matter. Mm. So at that point, there was there a lot of conflict between the Yugoslav and the Al- Albania specific parties, or, or were they was it kind of like in, pu- in private there was pressure because the Yugoslavs, sure. as I said, they wanted to uh, incorporate Albania as a Serb republic. That was their idea, and uh, as a result of that, they denounced not only the Hoxha privately as a petty bourgeois, as a nationalist, as a foreign educated uh, person who had no connection with the international communist movement. He, unlike Tito, who had been uh, in the communist movement since the 1920s, and the Hoxha, as I said, he had barely been interested, and he had no connections with the Comintern, the communist international. Tito was a veteran of the Communist International, and the Hoxha had nothing to do with that. So it was e- very easy for the Yugoslavs to simply say, hey, this guy, he's just some middle class uh, diliante, whatever, who has nothing to do with communism. Whereas Kochi Dizodze, the interior minister, he was a tinsmith. He had a working class background. So it was very easy to say, hey, this is a real proletarian revolutionary, and the Hoxha is just some you know middle class guy who doesn't matter. And uh, as part of the pressure on Albania, uh, one of Hoxha's uh, associates 
Nako Spiro, who was in charge of economics, actually ended up committing suicide because he was against the economic integration of Albania and Yugoslavia. He claimed these treaties are between us are unequal. Uh, we're getting a bad deal, and he was denounced and as a, you know a petty bourgeois, uh, diverse, diversive figure, divisive and whatever. And uh, he committed suicide. So that's just one example. I could uh, out of many examples of the Yugoslavs trying to in, impose themselves on the Albanian party, whether in the military, economics, and culture, and so on. Right, and that's how the Albanians saw it, as, as uh, imposition by the Yugoslavs. They weren't happy with these arrangements. Also, it helped that the fact that uh, Yugoslavia was seen as historically the enemy of the Albanians because they were Slavs. They were the you know the kingdom of Serbia and things like that. That's how a lot of Albanians saw the Albanian communists. They saw the Albanian communists as puppets of the Slav domination mm. of Albania during World War II. That was like the main argument. So, the, so when Albania and Yugoslavia did break up, that was popular in Albania when, when uh, Stalin... Uh, hat broke with Tito and the Soviets started denouncing Yugoslavia in Albania itself. That was a popular thing to do because, oh, we're finally free from the Slavs. Oh, we're finally uh, fighting against the revisionism. We're fighting against Tito's attempts to incorporate Albania and things like that. So, yeah. You know, uh, speaking of the Soviets, it it does remind me of one quote uh, that I remember. I think it's Khrushchev where he called Albania like the uh, the orchard of, of communism or the orchard of the Soviet well, Union? What happened in the late 50s, uh, Khrushchev visited Albania and uh, apparently, according to Enver Hoxha in his diary, uh, he talked about how Albania would serve as like an orchard garden, like a garden for the socialist uh, bloc, in other words, by providing agriculture because it was, you know, a poor country. It was receiving agriculture industrial help from the soviets but mostly it was an agricultural country and the soviets at that time were talking about an international socialist division of labor between the warsaw Pact countries so the idea was that albania would provide agriculture and uh, that was basically just uh, khrushchev's uh, ad hoc idea just by because he used to do uh, all the time he would go to places and just have these like weird sayings or ideas like oh this sounds like a good idea oh i noticed this this we should do this and enver hoja in his mind he saw it as like a conspiracy he saw it as like oh this is like diabolical plot by the Khrushchevites to uh reduce us to an agrarian economy to supply the colonial domination of the world whatever you know things like that in other words to reduce albania to a colony of the soviets that's how that's how hoja interpreted uh, a fairly uh, innocent statement otherwise because Khrushchev was thinking in terms of the whole socialist uh, community as he saw it hmm. and, and I guess that point is sort of also where uh, Albania moves from being friendly to the Soviets somewhat to siding more with China, China. Yeah. Well, what happened was uh, after Stalin died, uh, the new uh, Soviet leaders were trying to, uh, even before Khrushchev, in 19, even before 1956 with the secret speech and all that, denouncing Stalin uh, for his you know, things that he did, uh, the Soviet leaders like Malenkov, Beria, and everything like that, they actually met with Enver Hoxha and they were c- criticizing him. They were saying, you're spending so much on national defense. You know, they, we heard this thing. We heard your troops unreliable, all these things. And Enver Hoxha didn't like that. So even as soon as Stalin died, basically, uh, Enver Hoxha, who seemed to generally admire Stalin his entire life, basically, uh, became upset. And after Stalin was denounced in 1956, that's when things started to uh, differ from the Soviets and Albanians, started to seriously differ because the Albanians were hesitant to denounce Stalin. They started to build up relations with the Communist Party of China, which was making similar 
claims about uh, the, oh we have to worry about modern revisionism there's a danger about modern revisionism modern revisionism is coming up they didn't they didn't call it the soviets at first they just called it modern revisionism and they would attack yugoslavia because yugoslavia was normalizing relations with the soviet union after stalin so by attacking yugoslavia in the late 50s that was a way of indirectly criticizing the soviets and the soviets didn't appreciate that and that would help lead to uh, the open split between albania and the soviet union in 1961 and there was also pressure exercised by the Soviets against Albania in 1960 and 1961, such as withdrawing uh, naval uh, equipment, uh, withdrawing students that studied in, Albania, in Soviet schools, Albanian students in Soviet schools, all sorts of pressures on Albania to try to get them to submit, just like Khrushchev tried to uh, withdraw technicians and so on from China. They tried to make pressure and it backfired and the Soviets, like the Chinese, just got offended and said, hey, you're treating us like we're colonies, you're not treating us as independent equal states. So this this basic question about revisionism, I don't know, it, it's, it's sort of a thing that you see a lot online people sort of uh it seems like almost like an absurd thing right away to people that don't i think i think you've kind of like talking to you about it before really did convince me that there's like a debate there there's like an actual uh, well, there were, complex there were, thing you know so well there were differences uh well here's the thing uh after stalin died and the new soviet leaders came to power there was a renewed emphasis on how, for example, imperialist, imperialist wars were no longer seen as inevitable. Now, Stalin, for example, he explicitly claimed in his uh, economic problems of socialism in the USSR that inter-imperialist conflicts between like Britain and France against the United States were inevitable and they were going to come soon. And uh, obviously, nowadays, in hindsight, we know it didn't happen, but that's how Stalin saw it. He even said that uh, those who were not expecting inter-imperialist wars in the near future were basically expecting miracles to happen. That's how he saw it. So in, in 1956, at the 20th Party Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, uh, there was that declaration that imperialist wars were no longer inevitable, not only because of nuclear warfare causing mutual destruction of the whole world, but because there was now a strong socialist community of nations, like the, led by the Soviet Union, with China and so on, that could exercise its influence to prevent inter-imperialist wars from breaking out. So that was the argument of Soviets. And the anti-revisionists, as they called themselves, like China and Albania, disagreed. They argued that imperialist wars were still inevitable. Uh, there wasn't just a tendency towards them. There would still be new wars breaking out and things like that, whereas the Soviets emphasized negotiation and what they call peaceful coexistence. Now, there's many other aspects of the debate, like the Soviets in, Eastern, in Western Europe were encouraging uh, what were known as parliamentary paths to socialism. Uh, and uh, the Soviets were also emphasizing that uh, in the Soviet Union itself, the dictatorship of the proletariat had given way. It had fulfilled historical goals. All the exploiting class had been liquidated. Now came uh, uh, the state of the whole people. That was another bone of contention between the Chinese and Albanians on one hand and the Soviets on the other, because the Soviets were emphasizing uh, the unity of their society, how everyone was happy, united, content. There were no uh, exploiting classes anymore. There was just workers and peasants united building communism. That's how the Soviets presented it. Whereas Mao Zedong obviously had a very different idea. He believed that that class struggle continues under socialism and that that new bourgeois uh, comes from the party and so on. 
and Albania echoed many of these same points. So yeah, there were there are actual differences between them. It's not just like rhetoric. Uh, sure. The thing is, if you want to really consider the Soviet position to be revisionist or not, because revisionism, of course, is meant to be a revision of Marxism to to remove it of its you know revolutionary concepts, to remove it of its scientific content. That's why Edward Bernstein, the founder of revisionism, was seen as a revisionist because he said the movement, the goals of the movement are nothing. We just care about piecemeal reforms today. That's what matters. The actual goal of socialism is just some like distant thing that will eventually be attained. That's how they was. He was seen as fundamentally distorting Marxism. So, if you believe, for example, that inter-imperialist wars are inevitable and that this is a key Marxist principle, that without it, you you're distorting a, a essential part of Marxism, then it would make sense to call the Soviet position at 1956 revisionist because of the fact that they no longer considered them to be inevitable in the imperialist wars. But I think realistically, uh, the Soviets were simply looking at the world, not always correctly, but mostly just looking at the world as it was and saying, hey, you know, third world countries are becoming stronger. They're trying to build socialism as they see it. Uh, the inter-imperialist countries are not really feuding anymore. They're mostly working together against the socialist countries and against liberation movements in the third world. Uh, and also in the Soviet Union itself, there were no exploiting classes. There was no capitalists. There was no kulaks. There was nothing like that. So the dictatorship of the proletariat uh, really didn't seem to have much of a theoretical purpose anymore. Like, who were they suppressing? What capitalists were they suppressing? Things like that. And finally, another thing also needs to be pointed out personally is uh, a lot of the criticisms that China and Albania made against the Soviets, uh, a lot of the things like peaceful coexistence, for example, that was that was a bone of contention between the two sides. Uh, that began under Stalin. Stalin himself, himself spoke of peaceful coexistence and how uh, capitalists and social states can get along, they can trade mutually, uh, assuming the capitalist states were willing to do that, which, of course, mostly they weren't, but the Soviets still struggled for peaceful coexistence. That's an example. A lot of the criticisms the Chinese and Albanians made were criticisms of things that were already happening under Stalin. It's just that because when Khrushchev was doing them, when Brezhnev was doing them, they called it revisionist because they were feuding with China, with the Soviets and they needed to have like a Marxist uh, uh, vocabulary to describe what was going on. They couldn't just say, oh, you're wrong. I disagree with you. They had to say, you're renegades, you're revisionist, you're traitors, you're social fascist, you're social imperialist, and so on. So a lot of the revisionist uh, claims, claims about revisionism were... Uh, in other words, uh, exaggerated. They were very exaggerated. I think sure. in hindsight, you can see that a lot of it was unfounded or at least distorted. And the Soviets sure. themselves, of course, tried to present a very uniformly negative view of China as well. They claimed that Mao Zedong was a, an absurd nationalist. He had ambitions to rule the world, to take over Russian territory, to uh, annex Mongolia and things like that. They tried to make Mao Zedong sound like a complete imbecile, basically, who didn't know what he was doing. He was leading China into madness. And so, yeah, both sides said absurd things. And uh, I think nowadays the main task isn't to talk about revisionism against anti-revisionism. It's just to talk about, hey, what went wrong? Uh, what the hell happened? Why did it happen? And uh, yeah, basically something like that. I don't think the real struggles between revisionism and anti-revisionism anymore. I think both sides had more in common than their differences. Yeah. I think that, uh, so this is, we've talked, I mean, this, what we're talking about is mostly sort of the foreign policy part and the rivalry part. But um, there's also, you know, the part of revisionism in terms of the economic structure and changes within the Eastern Europe, uh, sort of like economic systems, uh, 
in the sort of destalinization period where less in the Soviet Union, Eastern Germany, but you, you know, places like may, maybe sort of like Hungary and uh, especially Yugoslavia, but also um, even within like say Poland and, and uh, Czechoslovakia, you had sort of moving towards some market mechanisms or something. Yes. Yeah. And uh, well, the funny thing is uh, the Soviets themselves, they were never really enthusiastic about like Hungary, for example, Hungary's new economic mechanism in the late sixties was viewed by the Soviets with some uh, caution. They didn't really care for it. There was actually some pressure in the early 70s to try to get them to move to tone down the reforms. And as for Yugoslavia, officially, even though the Soviets considered Yugoslavia a socialist country after Stalin died and they normalized relations, they always thought that the Soviet, that the Yugoslav model was flawed. The Soviets would always say, oh, the program of the League of Communists of Yugoslavia contains revisionist formulations. They would still criticize it. They never really... Uh, uh, reconciled themselves to the idea that Yugoslavia could be its own model of socialism. They always held that it was it was wrong, basically, and that one day, eventually, the workers of Yugoslavia would realize their errors and return to the Soviet fold. There was always that thing. And another thing also is that even in Hungary, even in Poland, even in all these countries, even in Eastern Germany, which had what's called consumer socialism, all these attempts uh, at trying to reform the economy in reality, when you look at them, they're really not that radical. They're really not that that extreme uh, in the changes that they enacted. Uh, basically, the Stalin-era model in the Soviet Union was continued. There were reforms, yeah, there were, there were attempts to encourage uh, a personal incentive. Like, for example, managers would have uh, money left over if they fulfilled plan targets and they could use this money to give themselves or give workers bonuses, stuff like that. Pretty minor stuff, really nothing that alters the system. And that's why when you look at the Soviet Union or Romania, Hungary, Bulgaria, Albania, all those countries, even Yugoslavia to extent, a lot of their problems were basically the same ones where they have problems with uh, consumer goods, poor variety of consumer goods, uh, stagnant growth, low labor productivity, managers who are afraid to adopt new technology, all, all sorts of things like that. Even in, in Yugoslavia, even in the most market-based system in Eastern Europe, there were there were similar problems as plagued the Soviet Union, which suggests that fundamentally, despite the great differences between the two countries, let alone uh, these these smaller countries like Hungary and all that, which were much more minor differences, it was still basically the same system. There was really no like fundamental divergence that they restored capitalism or anything like that. They were working. Uh, you know, Soviets, not Yugoslavs, but the Soviets and so on, were working with the Stalin-era system. They were modifying it, but it was still the Stalin-era system. It wasn't, you know, capitalism. It wasn't a restoration of capitalism. That's how I see it. And I guess uh, that does sort of change the further you get from the um, Warsaw Pact, I guess, or and and China. Um, well, like, China had its own system, but it wasn't really sure. any. It wasn't market oriented. Obviously, it was. Sure. If anything, it was much more. Uh, the Soviets called it voluntaristic, where uh, of course Mao had to greatly forward the Cultural Revolution. He emphasized uh, cultural incentives. I mean, uh, over material incentives. He he didn't. He said that uh, you should produce. Uh, you should have socialist consciousness and things. That was the main focus. And the same thing in Cuba. In the 1960s, Cuba was also big on uh, incentives being based on uh, you know being a true revolutionary, having a revolutionary consciousness rather than producing because you know it'll make you money and it'll materially sure. benefit you. Yeah. And when the Cuban economy entered into difference and the difficulties in the late 60s because of its very ambitious programs and so on, the Soviets stepped in and said, okay. 
do it our way, do it with more material incentives, do it more less ambitious, in other words, and the Cubans start firing the Soviets and having a more cautious economic policy rather than a very uh, independent one that was trying to sound more radical than it could be. That, I think that's the main problem with like Cuba in the 60s and China in the 60s and so on. They tried to be radical. They tried to be the most radical they could be. They tried to show that they were different from the Soviets. They tried to show they're anti-bureaucratic. They're, uh, they're truly building socialism. They're truly, uh, they truly care about revolution, things like that. And the problem with that is when you have a, a backwards economy, and you really can't do that. You really can't skip ahead and just have people say, okay, I want you to produce like you're a revolutionary. I want you to produce because communism is good. I want you to produce because, uh, you know, the state asked you to do it for higher production. You need to have material incentives. And I think ultimately that's what kind of doomed all those like really radical attempts in the world. Even in the Soviet Union, which was more cautious, there was just an insufficient focus on material incentives. As far as everyone saw it back then in those countries, it was going to be uh, the downfall of capitalism was imminent. Uh, the socialist countries were advancing victoriously and steadily. And uh, you could basically just rely on a, a, a fully planned economy in the 20th century and you'll do just fine. Uh, history showed that didn't really work out as well as that should have been. So if that's true, I mean, I guess the the concern is that uh, if you try to get some sort of middle path in some terms where it's it's less, you're more integrated into the world economy, maybe in some respects, if you can, uh, if you have more market mechanisms or some other sort of mechanism for music. Is the danger counter revolution? Is that what you're thinking of? Danger of counter revolution? No, yeah, I mean, that's that, you know, danger of counter revolution and also not even just counter revolution as much as. You know the practices built into the model that encourage a spiraling towards more and more material incentives, which can create its own, you know, like kind of revolution, but not necessarily the fact that it's driven from some sort of conspiracy as much as built into that kind of model. Because obviously, this is sort of like part of Enver Hodge's critique of these things, which, and if you kind of look at it a certain way, it can it looks like it's almost it almost came true in a way. He's saying, you know. You're going to restore capitalism if you keep moving towards this more and more. I mean, he said he, they already did. But, I mean, if you keep moving towards more incentives-based, more accounting-based, uh, profit-loss-based kind of thinking, um, that it just creates that incentive to overthrow the system. So, Well, I think the problem was, uh, if, as I said, the Soviet reforms, like the, the Lieberman reforms in the 1960s, uh, these were fairly moderate reforms, I think, Uh if you look at them, they really didn't change the system that much. They added more incentives. They tried to make more material incentives, but they didn't really change the system. The problems with the system, I argue, weren't that there was more material incentives added. The problem is that there was just excessive planning relative to the limitation of time. The technological limitations, for example, the most obvious being computers. Computers were primitive. Planning would have to be done a lot of it by just using your hand and a pen and paper to plan a whole economy. Uh, that that caused huge problems because a lot of the uh, computing technology didn't exist back then. And uh, also another problem is that uh, when you have an economy that doesn't uh, have material incentives to the extent it should have, and it just focuses on planning on a basis of a backwards economy, that in itself creates problems. That in itself creates black markets. That in itself creates corruption. That in itself creates cynicism. So 
I think the fact that you create an economy that's supposed to be socialist, that's supposed to be, you know, basically egalitarian, but then you see black marketeers prop up and people try to get basic goods from the black market, that in itself causes problems. And that was a big problem in the Soviet Union. Uh, the problem wasn't that they had material incentives, as, as I see it. The problem was that they did not actually have enough material incentives. They did not actually have enough efficiency. So that and then came these forces like the black market that would sap the social system, that would undermine it, that would make a mockery out of it. Because if employer, if uh, managers at an enterprise, for example, couldn't get supplies in time to fulfill a plan, they would illegally go to another enterprise and say, hey, let's barter. I'll send you my steel in exchange for your uh, wood or whatever the hell, any, any sort of objects. They would do all these sort of backroom dealings just to get supplies, just fulfill an economic plan. And if you have a planned economy, obviously that just throws everything out the window because, you know, you, that's not a planned economy. That's just people basically saying, you know, this isn't working. Let's just uh, do uh, nuts and bolts here, ad hoc measures here to try to patch things up. I think in itself, that itself is a big problem with uh, trying to have a, pl a planned system in a society that cannot basically uh, have a plant system. It isn't ready for it yet. It, is, it doesn't have the material uh, prerequisites for that. I think that's especially the case in Albania. That's especially the case in the Soviet Union, things like that. They were just too poor, basically. They were too backwards. That's how we see it. So what was uh, Hoja's response? Like, what was his uh, answer to these problems? Well, as I said, his answer was to claim that a lot of problems had to do with bureaucracy. He uh, launched what was called the Cultural and Ideological Revolution in 1966. Uh, he, his answer was basically to have uh, the workers of the country uh, basically be more militant. That was basically his idea. He was focused on ideology. So workers would be able to uh, criticize their managers or criticize each other for lagging on the job. Uh, that already existed in the Soviet Union. There were already wall newspapers in the Soviet Union too. But basically Albania's answer to that was, let's expand that, let's make more criticisms and so on. But this is another problem though. That in itself made problems because the wall newspapers would contain gossip works would start to gossip about each other or they would bring up abs absurd complaints or they would just really just have no really productive thing to say but they were encouraged to criticize anyway so and they couldn't really criticize the system itself they couldn't really say hey you know we can't get consumer goods because this system seems to be really highly controlled and that created its own cynicism because while Enver Hoxha was talking about being a true revolutionary, transforming the consciousness of the people and so on, uh, Albanian officials and managers still had their own privileges. They still lived much better and ordinary workers couldn't really do anything about it. They couldn't really criticize. They couldn't really uh, improve their own standard of living. So when Enver Hoxha said, we must live and work like revolutionaries, uh, and, uh, you know, not hanker after washing machines and other, you know, uh, luxury goods or consumer goods in the West. Uh, ordinary people looked at that and increasingly as time went on, they saw that as basically saying, oh, you shouldn't have these things, but we can have them. We can go to France. We can go to German, West Germany or Italy and uh, go to hospitals and go to get better education or get uh, better supplies, get consumer goods ourselves. But you ordinary workers, oh, no, that's corrupting influence. That's a bad influence on you. You should stay away from that. You should be true communist revolutionaries. Yeah, that's how people saw it. People became disillusioned. So even though Enver Hoxha's solution was essentially to revolutionize society, the way he did that was just basically say to people, be more revolutionary. And at the end of the day, that wasn't that didn't work. That didn't fulfill any consumer needs 
or really any political need to uh, criticize the system and be able to offer real suggestions beyond just, oh, this manager is ignoring my complaint or whatever. You know, very minor complaints compared to what really need to be criticized and addressed. Yeah. Yeah, that's unfortunate, I guess. Um, one of the sort of things that I guess if people have some sort of limited knowledge of Albania about they kind of look at the quirks of this kind of period of, you know, the weirdness of it, you know, and yeah, some of the, because well, of the isolation. It is seen as a weird country. It's seen as like this weird uh, Neverland. Like I said, the leader before Enver Hoxha was King Zog. And people <laughs> King Zog and say, oh my God, that must be a cartoon character. What is this? So yeah, there you go. So uh, I guess one of the ones that I've heard that you, you had said about uh, beards, like you weren't allowed to have a beard. Was yeah, that... the, re the reason why is because as part of the uh, cultural and ideological revolution under Enver Hoxha there, uh, there was this campaign to eliminate religion. Uh, Albania was the only country where uh, religion was simply outlawed. Like even, even though they never formally claimed to have personally abolished like personal worship, uh, they still in practice, you couldn't even privately worship. And the ban on beards was part of that because Orthodox clergy and, you know, Muslim clergy were known for having beards. So having no beards, uh, banning beards was seen as part of that. Also, beards were associated with hippies and then the Hodja didn't like hippies. So, yeah. <laughs> That's actually yeah. one thing that I think is funny about, like, uh, the hippies just think quickly is that it's funny that there's this kind of merging of all counterculture, revolutionary sort of stuff nowadays where people associate uh, all sorts of stuff like hippies uh, with the, you know, communists and all this kind of stuff. And it's it's funny because, you know, you had mentioned this to me before, but like how a lot of people in uh, socialist countries, like a lot of the leaders at least, were very uncomfortable with that kind of, uh, you know, uh, wildness or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah, well, they wanted to have uh, societies where it seemed to be, uh, you know, pretty well regulated, basically, where society planned and society and human beings would be uh, building society collectively. There wouldn't be alienation. They saw hippies as a sign of alienation because hippies were told to drop out of society, you know, basically take drugs, form their own isolated communes, things like that. So being hippie was seen as being anti-socialist, in other words, objectively anti-socialist. That's how it was interpreted in Eastern Europe. And similar with like the punk movements and things like that too. Yeah, that was seen as in. as uh, trying to withdraw from the rest of the community. That was seen as a harmful element. That was seen as you know bad. Sure. Okay. Well, how about this? Before we start with our listeners' questions, let's uh, let's talk about E-Regime a little bit. So E-Regime is a website that you started. I don't know how many years ago. Well, I uh, yeah, because uh, what happened was I used to run political simulations uh, on forums like RevLeft, uh, Something Awful, and so on. And uh, eventually I decided, hey, what if my games would get even bigger? Because I was starting to get like 40 or more players for my games. And these were simulations of historical periods like the Cold War, where people would play as countries or leaders and uh, basically just simulate the Cold War. And it, then turns, and it would be turn-based games. And, and in fact, uh, I'm working on one right now set in the world in 1945, where if you want to, you can play as Enver Hoxha, you can play as Albanian politicians, you can play as pretty much every damn Albanian who ever lived, if you want to, which we don't, <laughs> but, you know, so I'm just saying, because uh, we got to be real about Albania here, but uh, yeah, that's EWG in a nutshell, EWG runs all sorts of games, mostly though, political games about uh, Cold War or the war in Afghanistan. Uh, you yourself, uh, uh, Tom, you actually did run uh, simulations of, of the Afghan Civil War, if I recall yeah. right. 
That's right. Yeah. And then, I mean, people, I don't even remember how long ago that was. It was years ago, but people still will bring that up to me. Like, man, I remember playing that Afghanistan game with you and that was so much fun and stuff. Uh, it, it's really interesting. I, I, they, what the games tend to kind of play out like, it's sort of like a combination of like risk and some kind of turn-based, like a, it's not as complicated as like civilization. It's just run on a form. It's all text-based, post-based stuff. You just send in your your turn orders every uh, you know week or so. I'd say maybe twice a week. I think another factor that's that contributes also is that there's uh, there's no real like seriousness now. People don't take them seriously. Like if someone yeah. plays the Cold War game as uh, like Bhutan or something, some country like that, they're not going to be like, "I am the Majesty of Bhutan. I'm going to have this long post about my glorious kingdom." They basically just have a very hands off approach to the game, and there's lots of joking and everything. Even though this the actions they send in the game, like okay, and uh, do this thing and invest in this thing, those are serious. But the actual people talking to each other is laid back. It isn't meant to be like this very serious environment where you get to pretend you're literally President Nixon uh, denouncing people or whatever the hell. You can basically just do whatever you want as far as a role play goes. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's 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 a nice thing that I like about it is that you can kind of scale that up and down as much as you like in terms of role playing. Like some people really just enjoy that aspect of it and so they'll like make newspapers for their country yeah. and stuff like that. And people who don't want to do that, they don't do it. They don't need to do it. Right, right. And so there's kind of room for everybody. I mean, I have honestly like learned a lot just by researching the the various like historical periods and the countries that I'm playing. Sometimes I'll just pick a country as an excuse to like kind of give myself some structure so I can like do, you know, learn about that country during that time or something. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I've enjoyed it a lot. I've been a yeah. little bit, uh, away from the forum for a while, but I'm going to, see if there's something interesting on there yeah for people me say it all the time that they learn about all these countries or movements or whatever by joining the game and i think that's a great thing because when you join the game you don't need to know anything really about the cold war i mean i've had people who knew next to nothing about the 1940s or 50s or, or 60s or whatever and they join the game and they start reading online and i answer their questions about history and stuff and then all of a sudden they're interested they're interested in playing as some obscure afghan warlord in the 50s or they're interested in playing as enver hoja who in 99% of the time, you're going to know nothing about and you have no reason to care about him. But if you play my game as Enver Hoja, you're going to learn all about Enver Hoja. And you're going to be like, wow, I know about Enver Hoja now. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> no one's ever going to have sex with me. But, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Another thing I want to mention about my site also is I have a section known as Marks which answers questions about socialism and history and things like that. So, uh, for example, if people want to ask me about Albania, they want me to go into more detail. They want me to be more uh, specific and, you know, less rambly, in other words. They could just ask questions on the forum there in the mocks section where they ha I have treads saying, ask me questions about anything and so on. You don't even need to make an account. You can just post it as a guest. So if people want to ask me more questions about Albania or something like that with citations to books and everything here, I could do that. I'd be glad to do that. Right. And what's the website again? Eregime.org? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Eregime.org, guys. And, uh, yeah, I can also vouch uh, for Ismail uh, on the learning and teaching side of it because I very much enjoyed for a very long time you know, going back and forth about different events as they emerged on the left and train spotting kind of stuff. Um, and uh, he was probably one of the few people a few years ago, at least, where uh, um, who would know and care about the details about these things um, compared to most people who have a very kind of shallow 
um, sort of knowledge about this kind of stuff in the West, I find. So, yeah. It's been yeah, good. I think I think one problem is in, in the West right now, a lot of the social movement nowadays, it's based on uh, very uh, superficial thing like, oh, OK, capitalism is bad, but they can't really articulate why it's bad other than, you know, it hurts the environment, of it, but they can't really articulate an alternative. And I think that's been a problem now because you have like Venezuela where people praise it because it's a participatory democracy. It's just like new experiment. That's a big problem with the Western left is they keep on trying to find these new perfect socialist experiments and they build them up so highly like mozambique for example in the 70s and 80s that was seen as like a huge deal yugoslavia was seen as a huge deal there were tons of leftists in the, in the west during the 70s and 80s and 60s who were all about yugoslavia how it was producing a new model of workers self-management it was going to revolutionize the world and of course in reality it wasn't all that cool it didn't really work that well and that's basically a big thing they idealize all these foreign countries rather than look at them on their own terms they kind of impose their own ideas on them so that for example the soviet union was seen as this vibrant democracy where people could just freely you know criticize or things like that and in reality there was just a lot of problems and a lot of the the left in, in the west just kind of uh, either ignored it because they thought that anti-communists were the ones peddling these things, or they just excuse it because, oh, well, they're backwards. So it's okay if uh, they can't really criticize or something, or or in their culture, you know, it's okay because uh, the leader cannot be criticized. They basically make all these like weird excuses where on one hand, they'll idealize the society as some like cool new experiment in socialism, but then when it comes to criticizing it, they'll make all these excuses like, oh, well, it's a different culture, it's a different society, you can't really... You, you, basically all these like weird excuses and uh i think that's a problem because when today you look at the social movement in the west they have no real models they have no real experience to draw from because they just ignore it either they say oh it's not really socialism or oh well real socialism is like uh, venezuela some they, they just take one country like cuba like cuba is nice and all but it is more than just cuba you can't just say cuba is the only socialist country that's worth a damn screw all the rest cuba's where it's at that's just dumb the same thing with albania uh people who upheld enver hoja they just focused on albania that's all they cared about and that distorts things because albania is just one country albania is very specific country and when you just use that as an excuse to ignore other countries that's a problem and that's sure. I, that was a problem with me because i used to uphold enver hoja that was a big reason why i read so much about albania because i was so obsessed with enver hoja and albania that i didn't learn about the soviets i didn't read about china i didn't read about the dprk or cuba or all these other socialist countries so i had a very distorted view not just of those other countries but also of the fact that to me, socialism was just this one single example other than Stalin for a few decades. And uh, yeah, that basically just kind of distorted things. And it just made me unable to look at socialism as more of a global phenomenon with uh, similar problems throughout the countries and uh, similar attempts to fix those problems and so on. I, I ramble a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, I mean, yeah, I agree with you. I think that I think that that's uh, it's good that, you know, you're going further abroad, I guess and uh working through those sort of commonalities because yeah i mean i think that's true that like the left in the united states especially um yeah i mean you see a lot of people a lot of people are just feeling their way through the first steps of this too because there's been this kind of sea change where you i mean just the number of people who seem interested in socialism, socialism sounds cool now now it's a cool <laughs> yeah um uh, and that is new in a lot of ways compared to at least for a few decades so yeah
Yeah, it's um, just sort of like how I, I compare it uh, sort of to how back in the 90s and like 2000s, being called a libertarian was seen as cool. Like this was the cool modern modern ground between the Democrats and Republicans. Like everyone's libertarian now because we want low taxes and free pot. It's so cool. Then Ron Paul was president. And then you have the real libertarians come out and talk about the gold standards evil. Oh, my God, the Fed. And then all this like, <laughs> great shit comes happening. And then the socialist and then the libertarians are like, oh, shit, no one's going to join us now because we ruined it because now the the actual libertarian movements here and that's the end of that and then libertarianism wasn't cool anymore uh, i think the socialist movement they won't probably won't suffer the same problem but there's definitely you can see undercurrents where people who think stalin did nothing wrong or they, yeah. they go around with ma- mail caps or whatever uh holding up copies of red book or you know calling themselves red guards and attacking other leftist events all these like weird things happen and sure. on the surface though you have like this very broad undefined uh, like cool movement oh yeah socialism you know we want a better world we want a, a better democracy we want you know all these things yeah and they're trying yeah. to find a way true from that very vague statement that can mean anything and like the weird groups and weirdness in general that can be found on the fringes of the left. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so let's let's get into the questions here. Uh, there's a bunch of people that were asking about a pyramid scheme that like tore down the country's economy or something. Yeah, I, I'm not that was after the uh, replacement of socialism, and because uh, after 1991, the economy basically collapsed. Uh, it had already been in serious problems because the country's isolation meant that a lot of factories had been uh, outdated. A lot of factories had been over half a century old or so, and uh, as a result of that, the uh, the, the whole economy started to fall down because unprofitable um, enterprises had to be closed. Uh, collective funds were suddenly dispersed by citizens who was like, okay, let, well, there's not going to be collective farming no more. Let's just take our property and run. This caused chaos, lots of problems. And then in the mid-90s came another cr- a crisis. That was a pyramid scheme that a bunch of Albanians had uh, had savings that got wiped out because it was a pyramid scheme. And uh, the government was blamed for it. Uh, the anti-communist government under the Democratic Party uh, was uh, trying to uh, tell people, oh, well, it's, it's not a big deal, we'll recover. And uh, then came armed rebellion. The rival party, the Socialist Party, which was Social Democrats, although they had a few former communists. It was basically the former Communist Party only became Social Democrats. That was a common thing that happened in Eastern Europe. Uh, they decided to have an armed uprising in the south, southern Albania. And uh, the president of Albania at the time, the prime minister of Albania, uh, Sali Barisha, he basically cl- com- complained to NATO. He said, oh, my God, there's a communist uprising in southern Albania, which it wasn't really, but that's how he framed it. And uh, NATO sent a few troops from Italy, and uh, the crisis was basically averted. Uh, they, The uh, armed guards in the south there didn't really do anything to really shake up the situation. They just kind of said, hey, we're fed up with the government. The government's corrupt. And the Socialist Party came to power in elections, and that basically that was how this that crisis was solved by Social Democrats. Like, oh, hey, elect us, and that's the end. But, yeah. Wow. Do you know what the exact nature of the pyramid scheme was? Uh, no. Uh, after you see, this is the thing. I read about Albania because of its socialist period. I was so excited about. I was so into the socialist period and the years before the socialist period that modern Albania. I didn't really pay any attention to. I just thought it was like this uh, capitalist darkness, and then, you know, not that it's great. It's been great since then, but uh, yeah, I just didn't focus that much on it. I just focused on you know the socialist period because that's what anyone focuses on really. Nowadays, no one really cares about Albania, just uh, the weird things they did. If you do yeah. weird things, people care when you're smart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, that's a uh, that's good advice for any burgeoning young young leaders out there. Yeah, 
do do some weird stuff, you'll get some attention. Like Bhutan, I, I talked about Bhutan before. Uh, they have what's called a national happiness index. You know, that's how they get known in the world. They say, "Oh, we have a national happiness index for our economy." You know, there you go, stuff like that. Yeah, weird things. Uh, considering that Gramsci was an Albanian Italian Tosk, did he have any influence on the overall ideological and educational structure of socialist Albania? Were there monuments or tributes to him? Were his works even translated? Uh, no, I, to my knowledge, no. Uh, the, the only involvement of Gramsci in Al on Albania, as far as that goes, is uh, during World War II, when the uh, fascist Italian army surrendered, a bunch of them went over to the uh, communist partisans and formed their own uh, battalion named after Antonio Gramsci. To my knowledge, that's really the only recognition. I think even though Gramsci was uh, Albanian ethnically, he was basically seen as an Italian figure. He was an Italian Communist Party leader. He wrote in Italian and so on. So basically, he was seen as just a thing for Italians to uh, celebrate. And uh, also, another thing you need to keep in mind is uh, Gramsci's fame in the West only really started to, to spread in like the 1960s and 70s. So he wouldn't really have a, a formative effect on Albania, especially since, again, he was in fascist prison and he died before the war ended. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So here's someone asking about the Bay of Pigs of Albania. That's a reference to how the CIA in the late 40s and early 50s tried to overthrow the government of Albania. Uh, by having uh, anti-communist Albanian exiles uh, armed and trained in West Germany and uh, basically parachute or dive into Albania from the sea there. And uh, it backfired. It backfired horribly because uh, a major reason was there was a Soviet spy named Kim Philby who told, oh, about, yeah, who told about – the uh, that what was going on basically, and he told the Soviets, and the Soviets were able to tell the Albanian authorities. So there would be landings, and the Albanians would actually see, oh, okay, we know they're coming. Another problem, ironically, was Albania back then was so poor because it was a poor country that uh, landings were complicated because there was no lights anywhere. There would be pitch black, <laughs> and they couldn't even land. They said, "Where's the landing spot? There's no, there's no city streets. There's nothing." And so that you know, there was like all these like weird little problems. Uh, if you want a little bit more detail on that, there's the book uh, Killing Hope by William Blum. There's a short chapter on that thing in Albania where the CIA tried and failed to overthrow the government. If you want more, more basic info on that. Huh, that's that's kind of interesting. Uh, all right. Next question is, were fat people welcome in socialist Albania? Uh, yeah, as long as you didn't have a beard. Uh, <laughs> right. It, uh, after 1983, they stopped shaving at the borders. But if you went into Albania with a beard or bad clothing, as they interpreted it, you had to change. You had to go into proper social attire. I see. Uh, all right. Someone says, Ismail, you crazy delaying maniac. When will the Katanga game start? So okay. this is probably from someone from E-Regime. Uh, who's eagerly awful, awaiting like that. Yeah. maybe something awful yeah and okay so first we probably need to mention what Katanga is what the hell that is and uh, it was a it's the richest province of the Congo and in 1960 it declared its independence it was backed by Belgian mining interests who were trying to overthrow the government of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo and I figured that would be an interesting thing to simulate because the Katanga region was not only pretty large and very wealthy not for its inhabitants but you know as an economy it had a big mining sector and it had a civil war going on between the north and south of the province 
So I figured that'd be a very interesting thing to do. There's lots of intrigue. There's lots of like weird stuff about mercenaries and things. I thought that'd be really cool. And the reason why it's been taking so long is because I've been reading about it because I felt this had to be something cool. This should be something like big because this is like a very interesting thing to simulate. So I've been accumulating books for years now. I have over 100 books about the Congo sitting in my living room uh, a, a library uh, thing there. And it just keeps growing. I, I just keep finding new interesting books to read about it, read about uh, economics and politics and things like that. Uh, but eventually my idea is, as I said, I'm, I'm going to run an, a game set in the world in 1945, a Cold War game. And after that, I do intend to run Katanga. I have no idea when that will be, maybe two years from now or three years from now probably. But, yeah, I do intend to run it. I, I do intend to justify the fact that I now have hundreds of books about the Congo in my living room. I need to <laughs> well, well, that's a good excuse. <laughs> that's a good excuse. <laughs> uh, all right. So, hey, guys, I'm going to my neighborhood's local black market. Should I buy an Albanian AK or should I go to the classic Russian or the unexpected excellency of the Romanian Kalashnikov? Uh, well, I think Albanian AKs would probably get people to go, oh, I didn't even know Albanian made AKs. So maybe that'd be more important for bragging rights and to uh, have a very stimulating con- uh, discussions about Albanian weaponry. I don't know. Because if you say, <laughs> oh, it's Soviet. I have a Soviet AK. So, okay, yeah, you know, they, they Soviets did that. They made AKs. They probably wouldn't see it as no big deal. But if it's Albanian or Romanian, maybe there'd be more interest in, like, why did you buy an Albanian AK? What the hell's wrong with you? you know? Yeah. All right. Uh, another question about Romania here. Why the old anthem of Romania sounds just like the one from Albania? I think the composer was Romanian, the Alban- the composer for the Albanian anthem. Uh, I'd have to check myself, but uh, I think that's why, because a lot of the old European anthems, they usually had some composer come in from a foreign country and compose for them. And I know Albania's anthem, from what I recall, is a pretty generic tune about you know freedom and things like that, liberty, independence, and like that. That's probably why. Uh, Albania, under socialism, never had its own specific anthem. They just continued the original anthem from before the socialist period. Huh. That's kind of weird that they get like a foreign person to do the national anthem. You think? Well, you would... Here's the thing: Albania was so poor at the time of independence that even the founding fathers of Albania, when they met, discussed independence, they spoke in Turkish. They didn't speak in Albanian. <laughs> Most of them didn't even really know Albanian that well because Albanian was a language of the common people, the leaders, the landowners, and like that. They didn't really know Albanian. They knew they knew Turkish because they were Turkish officials. Albania was a province. It was a part of Turkey. Oh, right. Right. Yeah, that, that's sort of like Finland. Finland, Finnish, like the Finnish language was not like uh, educated people spoke Swedish. So when when they got their independence, a lot of those people, uh, you know, they they knew Swedish as like a. This isn't really the right word for this, but like as the court language, you know. Yeah. That was common um, in, the medieval, in the medieval ages, too. And just just the fact that it happened in Albania kind of shows how backwards Albania was. And obviously Finland wasn't an industrial power either. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So this one is about the real theoretical differences between Maoist anti-revisionism and Hojaist anti-revisionism. So we're talking about the big differences between China and Albania in terms of their anti-revisionism. Of, uh, yeah. Well, the thing is, uh, the Albanians obviously took a lot from the Maoist uh, criticisms. They claimed that capitalism had been destroyed in the Soviet Union. Uh, that the Soviet Union's foreign policy was, as they called it, social imperialist, meaning imperialism in, uh, in deeds while t- talking about socialism in words. That's how they described it, basically. 
and uh, but there were differences. Mostly, it's a difference of what Enver Hoxha wasn't. Like he didn't agree with Mao Zedong on the idea that there's two lines in the party. There's a line of the bourgeois, the new bourgeois, and there's the line of the working class. He disagreed with that. He thought that was some sort of capitulation to bourgeois ideology, for example. It's based, a lot of that's basically like that. He didn't believe, uh, Enver Hoxha didn't believe in the idea of uh, the great proletarian cultural revolution. He thought that was a departure from Marxism. So yeah, basically that's what uh, the differences are. Basically, it's just what Enver Hoxha did not agree with when it came to Mao Zedong. Uh, basically, yeah, that's basically it. Otherwise, they are very similar. There are lots of similarities. Okay, all right. So this is sort of like a pair of questions that I think one answers the other. So the first one is, are Albanians white? And then the second one says, the Albanian is not white. It has the worst characteristics of many other bad races. The criminality of the gypsy, the wickedness of the black, the rudeness of the Turk. And on top of it all, it is loyal to the anti-Aryan Semitic desert cults. So there you go. Question well, as an answer. American, uh, I don't really care about any of that because I, I bet here's the thing. Of course, uh, this is all very subjective, and that's a, always a joke. Like, if you're Italian, you're probably not as willing to view Albanians as white because, oh, Albanians are seen as these poor refugees that come into Italy, especially since the end of the socialist period. And, or if you're Serbian, you're definitely not going to see Albanians as white. You're going to see them as like Turks. You're going to see them as like foreign imposters who settled in Kosovo, for example. Whereas if you're an American, it doesn't matter. You could have some guy named Luigi. Uh, or something, something like weird name like that, and uh, almost be confused for an Italian or something. It doesn't really matter. Just like there's a, a Albanian mob, for example, a lot of people would just confuse that for an Italian mob because a lot of them are Catholic Albanians or whatever, and they, you know, they just they just see it as whatever. They don't really have any uh, ingrained view of Albanians as black or white or whatever the hell. Yeah. Do you know what, what Albania like? Is there an idea around this in Albania at all? Are you familiar with uh, that? I don't really think there's an idea. I think the Albanian, they see themselves as European. Yeah. Uh, that's about it, basically. They see themselves as descended from the Illyrians, who were an ancient people. There's disputes over whether they're really descended, but basically they see themselves as European, as part of the European culture. Uh, their, their national hero, uh, Skanderbeg, was uh, seen as a, a quintessential uh, European hero because he fended off the Ottoman Empire. He saved Christendom in the views of Albanian nationalists and so on by keeping the Turks at bay and preventing them from moving further into the Balkans and further into like Italy. So they see themselves as European. They view themselves, I, I, if I had to guess, they probably view themselves as white, but basically, yeah, European. Yeah. Uh, why do European people say that their weed comes from Albania? Uh, I don't do drugs, so I have no idea. I'm sorry. Yeah, good man. <laughs> I mean, it, maybe it does. I don't know. <laughs> maybe it's as simple as that. Uh, okay. I am a Greek American member of both the Greece and U.S. associations of small penis men created by Trotskyists during the late 60s. Were there any attempts to defend the rights of small penis men in, so in socialist Albania in spite of Stalinism and all? Well, the, the good news is that uh, penises were not an issue that Enver Hoxha concerned himself with, at least not publicly. I don't know about privately, but... Uh, uh, so, no, I think that uh, you don't need to worry. If you're a Trotskyist with a small penis, uh, you can focus on the actual ideological differences between Joseph Stalin and uh, Leon Trotsky. You don't need to worry about your uh, genitals. You know, you just focus on the ideological struggle. Go keep doing what you're doing uh, about deformed worker states, whatever. Don't talk about your penis. For, <laughs> you know, that's just a general good idea. In general. Yeah, 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 I agree. Um, all right, so someone says... 
wouldn't Albania have been better off as a constituent member of Yugoslavia? Sincerely, the brave Titoist. That's a good question. And I think, uh, honestly, yeah, it probably would have been, but it's not quite as simple because you have to remember also that uh, Albania wasn't, you know, it wasn't a Slavic country, obviously. And Kosovo was the poorest part of Yugoslavia. So I think when the breakup of Yugoslavia happened, that probably would have caused a lot of problems on its own because Serbia would have said Kosovo belongs to us. Albania would have said, no, it belongs to us. And it probably would have been civil war and fighting over that too. So I think during the Cold War, yeah, it would have probably been better off, honestly, as a part of Yugoslavia. But, you know, it wouldn't exactly have been smooth sailing afterwards in the aftermath. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So if if Albania had joined Yugoslavia, Kosovo would have remained attached to serbia or like there was an idea there was apparently yeah there was actually an idea to uh attach it to uh albania once albania joined yugoslavia that was supposed to solve the issue of kosovo because kosovo was kind of in a weird situation where this was a majority uh you know this was a non-slavic people attached to you know the heart of yugoslavia the serbian part of it and they didn't really know what to do with that. So adding Albania to the to the Federation was seen as a way to solve that. Because then it would just be attached and everyone would be living in harmony within the Federation. The Serbs would be in the Federation, protected by the Federation. Their interest in Kosovo would be protected. That was the idea, basically. Everyone could live happily ever after. Obviously, that didn't come. That didn't happen. Yeah. Is there any, like nowadays, uh, is there any uh, union kind of talk or... Uh, promotion amongst uh, Albanians with Kosovo now? Like, is there any... I think during the Cold War, the idea of a separate uh, Kosovo state was seen as weird. It was seen as either it's part of Serbia or it's part of Albania. And a lot of Kosovo Albanian nationalists uh, did aspire to join Albania. They saw their their struggle as to, to, you know, to rejoin the homeland. That's how they saw it. Uh, and they also was, were learning about Albania from the official Al- Albanian textbooks and schools and things like that, which were imported into uh, Kosovo for use in education. So they had a very high idea of Albania. After the Cold War ended and after Albania ditched socialism and you know Yugoslavia broke up, uh, people saw how poor Albania actually was. They saw it was also unstable. They also saw that there were differences between the north and south of Albania with their distinct culture and everything. So basically, nowadays, the opinion of Kosovo Albanians is that they're Albanians just like their brothers in Albania, but they should be separate states. They're not, they're not so similar as to actually unite, at least not anytime soon. That's basically how they see it sort of like how uh, Romania and Moldova there's tons of similarities and there's tons of people in both countries who would say they're the same culture essentially in the same nation but they don't really want to unify because it's more trouble than it's worth they also Albania had to worry about Serbia because Serbia doesn't recognize Kosovo's independence and so on same you know they just don't want to it's sure. not worth it in other words that's how people see it on both sides and just just one last quick thing about this is uh um did Tito want unity with anything to his east? Like, was there any other? Was there any other like, uh, like a Southern Slav Union or something like that yeah, kind that of thing? Was, like, there was an idea. Uh, Dimitrov, George Dimitrov, had been uh, who was leader of Bulgaria at the time. He had been uh, one of the leaders of uh, what was known as the Balkan Communist Federation, which was a movement in the 1920s and 30s to unite the Balkans under a socialist federation. And uh, even before World War I, that had been his idea. So when Tito came to power in Yugoslavia and uh, Dimitrov was in power in Bulgaria, there was this idea, yeah, let's form our own federation. And in fact, I believe it was Vladimir Dedeja, he was one of Tito's associates, even recalled 
Dimitrov privately telling the Yugoslavs when this when the break with Stalin happened that they should keep on, they should keep pressing on, they should keep uh, you know remaining true to their ideals and don't give in to uh, Soviet pressure. Dimitrov apparently privately sympathized with them, and he got the idea of a Balkan unity be very would be very powerful, very good because Macedonia, for example, was a uh, an issue between them. Uh, the Bulgarians had their own claims historically to Macedonia, and the Yugoslavs argued Macedonians were not Bulgarians. And uh, it was hoped that, for example, a federation between the uh, Bulgaria and Yugoslavia would fix that. And uh, yeah, but when the Soviets heard about the, all this federation talk, they got worried. They thought that the West would view this as a provocative act. And you also have to remember that. At the time, it's forgotten mostly nowadays, but in 1945, 1946, 1947, Tito in the West had a horrible reputation. He was seen as the most die-hard Stalinist in Eastern Europe. This was a guy who was shooting down American aircraft. This was a guy who was telling the Italian and French communist parties that they were reformists, that they, were, they weren't revolutionary enough. So yeah. you know, to annex other countries, to, to incorporate other countries, that was seen as provocative. So Stalin was like worried about that. He said, I don't know if we should do this. Let's hold that off. Let's not do that. Sure. So yeah, that, that happened. Okay. I think a Balkan Federation sounds pretty cool. That'd be based. Yeah. Well, you would support it under uh, renewed Turkish leadership. Yeah, yeah, sure. As an Ottoman <laughs> province. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Maybe a vassal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how about this? Is Albany the capital of Albania? Uh, no, but I'm sure there's plenty of Albanians in Albany. Maybe they got confused and uh, lost their way. <laughs> <laughs> and Ruth Seems... Albuquerque. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, okay, is it really true that the standard of living in Albania was improved under Hoxha? Can't a lot of that data be falsified? Uh, well, it's true. Well, keep in mind that uh, Enver Hoxha was leader of Albania for, uh, I think, uh, almost half a century. So there's usually going to be any improvement to begin with just because half a century had passed. And Albania had been given tons of aid by first Yugoslavia, then the Soviets, then the Chinese. In fact, the Soviets sent so much aid during the early 60s that they that Albania was able to abolish green uh, rationing on like food. It was able to abolish it because the Chinese, during the Great Leap Forward, during famine in their own country, were sending so much aid in, with no strings attached to the Albanians, the Albanians were able to just get rid of food rationing. That just gives you an example. Uh, a lot of Albanian progress was underwritten by foreign countries. As I said, Yugoslavia, the Soviets, and the Chinese. So there was definitely progress. Albania got its first university under the Hoxha, for example. Albania got uh, industries. Albania got, uh, you know, it was still a poor country. A lot of the data was exaggerated. Like they would talk about how agriculture was now mechanized. It was now put on a modern socialist basis. Then people would travel from the West Albania and they'd look at the socialist agriculture and they'd saw people, you know, with oxen and things like that. They didn't see modern tractors. They saw tractors from like the 1940s. They didn't see all this cool socialist agriculture. So there was definitely exaggerations but it's undeniable that yeah progress was made in albania the real question is did enver hoja sort of shoot his countries in the foot by his isolation and things like that and i think the answer to that is yes there could have been a lot more progress in albania if not for enver hoja if some other socialists had come to power he would have been better off all right um is enver hoja the closest thing we have to a political leader who is also a lurker you could argue the way he operated politically was very similar to lurker behavior. Well, he had a huge diary that he uh, would write in, and he would write about all world events, and he would comment on what he saw on TV and things like that. So uh, 
you know, yeah, I guess uh, in the context where there's no internet and, uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, I guess you can call him a lurker. Wow. What a great observation there. <laughs> yeah, I think that works. The, the diary is kind of like his group DM, except it's just him. Yeah. And, and like the ghost of Stalin. I and, guess. He and he couldn't travel after uh, he didn't travel outside of Albania. So he made up for that by just going around Albania and putting that. Oh, now I'm in this city. Now I'm in this city. And now instead of going like I'm in New York, I'm in Scotland or whatever and say just all these different parts of Albania, because that was his way of compensating for the fact that he was afraid to leave Albania. <laughs> what Canadian province is most like Albania and what U.S. state is most like Albania? Uh, I guess for Canadian, I don't know about Canada. I guess maybe Yukon, because I don't know. Maybe I, when I think of Yukon as an American, I just think of like gold mines and uh, well, Albania doesn't have gold, so it's not even like Yukon. I guess basically, what I'm saying is Albania is not like Canada. Uh, Canada is a complete negation of Albania. Uh, as far as the United <laughs> States goes, uh, I, I, I have no idea because it's kind of weird to say what is uh, like this modern country. Even the rural areas of the United States. I mean, you have like Mormons or something. There's no uh, Mormons in Albania. So I don't know. There's really no comparison. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. I do not know. I cannot do anything funny in regard to this question. <laughs> you got any ideas, Donald? Yeah, I would say maybe uh, something like Idaho or something. Just sort of there. People aren't really sure what's going on there. Oh, that's Just, right. There you go. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's isolated. It takes a long time to get there. Uh, and uh, not really, uh, you know, not much... Yeah, not much going on for itself right now. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I was thinking also. Nevada, if Las Vegas is like Kosovo, and so you take Las Vegas out of Nevada and it like somehow became its own thing or became part of another state yeah. or something, and then you just have all the non-Las Vegas parts of Nevada because they have like a lot of gold mines, I guess, uh, but not much else going on. So, yeah. Yeah, I guess the, basically the way you can compare Albania with uh, American states is like, what states does no one care about, like Delaware or something like that? Yeah, you know, basically that's that's probably the strongest comparison you can make. No one cares about Albania. No one cares about Delaware. No one really cares about Idaho either. All they have in Idaho is like a rock with a face on it. So that's really, that's their that's like their national uh, pride. They have like a rock with a, some old man's face on it. The rock formation looks like that. That's basically it. Something weird. Yeah. Something weird that people care about. Yeah, I probably, mean, you're probably yeah. the, like the number one albania fan in the u.s i'd say yeah for a non-professor yeah pretty much probably yeah they probably have statues for uh, george w bush in both albania and idaho too so <laughs> there you go yeah yeah, yeah albania has a, a statues of george w bush as you said and woodrow wilson and the kosovo has a statue of bill clinton so at least oh, wow. uh, both have like bill clinton so there you go that's <laughs> some like gate city right there <laughs> Um, should we deport Belle Del Delphine to Albania? I think this is like a, a streamer e-girl thing. It's an e-girl, yeah. Yeah. Uh, is she no Albanian or I'm something? Sorry. I'm sorry. No comment. I have no idea. <laughs> Mostly yeah. you should need to be deporting people unless you have like a good reason. And as far as I know, this person hasn't killed anyone or become a menace to America. So let's try to keep them in America for now and keep them on the watch. And I think sure she they're... sold fake bath water. Like she was selling yeah. water that was supposed to be her bath water and it wasn't actually hers or something. Or was Well, I think uh, when we abolish private property under socialism, we'll, we'll nationalize the bath water too. So we'll, we'll <laughs> Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. So we won't deport her because that would just be sending our kulaks over there. Yeah, then she can do catch revolution from abroad. So you need you need to keep them safe in this country. Yeah. 
Uh, okay, and another question here. Is Enver Hoja a part of the hyper left? Uh, I don't think anything Albania could seriously be called hyper, but uh, <laughs> so... Uh, no, he's he's part of the uh, weird uh, left that people look at and say, ha-ha, that's kind of weird, and then they move on to something more serious like, you know, Lenin or Castro or, you know, Mao. Um, I would say that they are part of the hyper-left, uh, which is my personal theory of uh, the future developing socialism and then projecting it backwards throughout history. Um, and uh, so what will happen is uh, Enver Hoxha was a partially socialist because everyone in history was partially socialist and also partially revisionist because everyone in history is partially revisionist. So I think that uh, he is part of the hyperleft through the process of socialist inversion, where every party throughout history becomes socialist. So yeah. Ah, see, I didn't know what the definition of hype of, hype of that was. See, because I was confused. <laughs> I thought hype meant something cool, like like you know, like well, high speed and like really cool ideas, like monorails and stuff. Like obviously that that's not Albania at all. So I got just confused. Well, it's time travel, and that's pretty cool. I don't know. Yeah, but Albanians don't time travel, I'm afraid. So oh, okay, <laughs> maybe like backwards, I, but not forwards. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's true. That is backwards mm-hmm. since 1991. Sure. Um, all right. So our friend Felix from Chapo Trap House uh, replied to the tweet I made about this episode, and that brought in a ton of replies from people that I don't even think are going to listen to this episode. But let's see if I can find something interesting here. Well, we can, here's Felix's question. What is Albania's population? Sorry, I don't know how to find this on my own. So uh, I, think it's, I know during the socialist period, I think it was something like uh, either two or three million. I think three million nowadays, but I think it was like two million at the time of the socialist period. So there you go. Probably three million right now. Well, two or three million Albanians, but zero, like technically, technically a population, a human population is zero. Well, in terms of importance, yeah, basically zero. Okay, so this is actually kind of interesting. Was Mother Teresa a Hojaist? So this is attached uh, to a screenshot of this. I'll just read this quote for you. I know, the, I know what this is going to be. Here we go. Okay, well, let me read it for the, the listeners here. In Hell's Angel and the Missionary Position, Hitchens leveled criticism at what he perceived to be Mother Teresa's endorsement of the government of Enver Hoxha in socialist Albania. She visited Albania in August 1989, where she was received by Hoxha's widow, uh, Nij, Nijmije. Pronounce it, you'll fail. <laughs> yeah, they, sorry guys, it's a it's a bunch of consonants. I can't it. <laughs> uh, foreign minister. Okay, so a bunch of she was received by a bunch of different people: the chairman of the People's Assembly, the Minister of Health, etc., uh, and other state and party officials. She subsequently laid out a bouquet on Hoja's grave and placed a wreath on the statue of Mother Albania. So she uh, was Albanian, was she not? She was Albanian. Yeah, I think she came from Macedonia, a part of uh, Macedonia that's had by Albanians. Uh, and uh, basically her goal was she wanted to, I think, open an orphanage or something like that. And uh, she wanted to basically make peace with the authorities by saying, hey, we're, we're not we're not, you know, communist, obviously, but we want to show that we're not against the government. She did something similar with the Duvalia and Haiti, for example. She basically she basically tried to be uh, to suck up to every government, basically, to try to get like orphanages and things like that. Basically, she didn't really uh, denounce governments and things like that. She tried to be apolitical, which in this case, it wasn't really apolitical because she would like 
late, you know, as you said, uh, wreaths on the graves of Envahoja and things like that, a bouquet of flowers. As for the Mother Albania monument, to my knowledge, uh, there isn't actually a Mother Albania monument in Albania. It, it's a monument about something else. I think it's a monument uh, about resistance to the fascists, something like that. And uh, Christopher Hitchens, I think, turned it into like this like weird nationalist, uh, almost fascist uh, monument or something like that. But uh, that's a distortion of his part. I don't know where he got that from. But I'm pretty sure the monument that he was talking about was just a monument about war dead during World War II, things like that. Yeah, so, well, the man drank a lot, so who knows? Well, you know. So it sounds like not exactly a hojaist, just uh Yeah, basically to... she just tried to say, oh, hey, you know, uh, we're going to open an orphanage or something like that. Here's uh, showing that uh, we're grateful. For, you know, basically they're trying to be inoffensive. They're trying to show that they want normal relations with Albania. She was sort of an emissary on behalf of the Catholic Church and things like that. She was trying to you know, improve relations. And the Albanian government was also trying to improve relations. That's why they invited her in the first place, because she was a nun and she was a famous figure. She had already won a Nobel Prize and so on. They were trying to get out of isolation and show how normal it was to the rest of the world at that point. Yeah, sure. Um, does Albania have the best flag? So I think a lot of people are familiar with this. It's the red flag with like the black eagle thing it's like a two-headed eagle or something like that yeah i i, I think it's a cool flag and all but although personally i i just like the simplicity like the soviet union and its flag and things like that so i don't personally consider it the best flag but i do think you know it's pretty cool i i've actually seen people on the left announce it like oh they're so they claim to be communist but they have this old flag with an eagle on it that's not communist that's medieval See, this is proof the Stalinist or like nationalist, you know, degenerate. Like they're not real true communists. Real true communists have a brand new flag. There's always like these weird reasons to attack these countries when you have nothing else to say. You just say, oh, well, they didn't do this like one minor thing. Or, oh, they changed the, the national anthem or something to make it sound a bit more nationalistic. Or, oh, they praise this national figure. They always try to make like these weird excuses to prove that, oh, this country couldn't have been socialist. Even though if they didn't do that thing, like even if Edward Hoja had changed the flag, it wouldn't matter anyway. They just find some other used to say oh that's not really socialism so you know just i mean it's a red flag what, what isn't that what you want a red flag yeah. I mean, that's they even had a star on top of it under Hoja. so you know they had a red star on it so there you go they have a medieval uh icon with a red star on it see yeah the tradition and the communist future together i, I do <laughs> i'm not sure if the, if like this eagle on there is the same like if it comes from the same place but i do think like the two-headed eagle was part of the austro-hungarian dual monarchy thing and that was like a representation of that i don't i i know that that has now kind of you know it's, it's represented in a lot of different countries yeah but you know, the iconography think, but i'm not sure the pacifics myself I, but i think it's also supposed to be like the byzantine empire things like that because i think it's yeah. supposed to be some medieval thing about scandinavia and things like that too so it's related to that because he had a national struggle and so yeah against occupiers so yeah hmm. uh all right let's see Someone posted a SpongeBob with the Albanian flag on it. What if Hoja knew COVID was coming and the bunkers were for quarantine? Well, uh, you know, as many bunkers as there were, I don't think it could hold too many people. So uh, that would be a really dumb idea. And it would be more <laughs> proof that without Enver Hoja, Albania would have done much better. Okay. Uh, and then yeah. some people were asking about the movie Inside Man. What did he say in the inside man i'm not familiar with this I'm not well sure. in the movie there's a scene where the i think the the robbers or something are trying to 
get the police off their trail so they start playing a tape in Albanian and uh, the police think oh it must be like demands or something and they get an actual Albanian and the Albanian woman says oh no it's Enver Hoxha and the police are like oh well we look like idiots now and uh, yeah. so yeah, basically the context and uh, well I don't know Albanian so I had no idea what he was saying it's probably just some campaign speech or something so there you go yeah okay oh, hometown or yeah. something yeah, it's a it. They're trying to. It's during the scene. They're they're trying to um, just buy time while they're doing some, you know, construction work, whatever. Like doing stuff within the bank and um, or whatever it is. And uh, so yeah, and it's I don't know. It it it's cute. It's a Spike Lee movie. So yeah. So this person says, "I'd love to know about two Cold War anecdotes. Number one, China's only naval base in Europe." Number two, foreign visitors being submerged in something like a sheep dip by the immigration officials. Okay, so the first one, uh, as far as I know, I don't really know about uh, Albania serving as like a Chinese naval base or nothing. Uh, it did take a long time for Albanians to get supplies from China because the Chinese had to cross uh, southern Africa and all and go all the way up there. But uh, I don't think they used that as a naval base. From what I recall, they mostly just... Uh, had their own things to worry about with uh, naval things in, uh, in China with Taiwan, things like that. They were probably preoccupied with that. As the, I know what the second thing is. That's a reference to uh, there was a uh, like a pond or something of disinfectant that people were encouraged to put their belongings in, like shoes, things that were supposed to go into the disinfectant thing. And a lot of uh, tourists, uh, foreigners thought that was weird, obviously, because, you know, why would I do that? But the Albanian officials did that, just like they cut off people's beards at the border because they wanted people to dress appropriately. So, you know, that was how things were. It was weird. Yeah, I imagine maybe China had like long-term goals of you know maybe if they're friendly with China, with albania then eventually albania will be able to develop a naval base and then they'll be able to use it and yeah. you know that makes sense i guess but yeah maybe it may be a long-term goal but as i said i don't recall any like naval chinese naval base anything like that in albania i just recall them taking a long time to send supplies because they had to cross southern africa the cape of good hope there and go up there through the mediterranean and so on so right. their aid was a lot less effective than the soviets the soviets could just do a lot more with the aid the Chinese weren't as good as substitute. Um, is Hojaism just Juche for the Balkans? Well, uh, Enver Hoxha didn't claim to have invented this whole uh, ideology. He claimed to be, just be like a Marxist-Leninist, that he was like the true Marxist-Leninist, and that was it. So uh, Hojaism is just like an informal term used to, uh, to, to describe people who thought that Maoism was revisionist and they agree with him to Hoxha, and that was it. That's why you had uh, Hojaist parties in uh, Brazil, in Ecuador, in Ethiopia. There was even the Hojaists in Ethiopia and so on, uh, because it wasn't seen as like a national thing. Like with the, Ju the Chucha idea there, that's seen as like very specifically North Korean. They've been trying to spread that across the world for decades and it hasn't really caught on. Whereas the have been Hodras parties in the third world that uh, that you know I've been trying to do it because that, that was just basically just Enver Hodges' interpretation of Marxism Leninism. It was basically just his hardline, you know, like Stalinism combined with his particular views on Mao and things like that. So it was kind of it wasn't that difficult to adapt it to other countries, uh, unlike the Juche idea, which is basically just North Korean in, in such a very unique way that you can't really replicate it anywhere else. Right. Um what state and cultural apparatuses, if any, survived in some form after the end of communist Albania? 
Uh, I don't really think there there was much uh, that survived. I mean, they adopted a new constitution. Uh, they got rid of the People's Assembly. I think they just call it Assembly now. So maybe that survived. But basically, uh, the original system had been has been removed. Basically, they used to have a council of ministers. Now they don't. Things like that. So I don't really think there's anything more. And of course, the Party of Labor of Albania, the ruling party back then, has is no longer exists. Now it's a socialist party. Now it's a social democratic party. It's abandoned Marxism long ago. So I don't really think there's that much left in terms of uh, political and state structure. Right. Uh, how was Hoja and his party able to garner support from Marxist-Leninist groups as far away as Ecuador and Brazil? And how did that support bolster Albania after its withdrawal from the Warsaw Pact? Well, it didn't really bolster it. In fact, this is one thing where it is similar to North Korea, because in North Korean media, there's definitely all these reports about there's now a Songun study society in Nigeria or something. They would always report on like all these foreign tiny groups in different countries talking about how cool Kim Il-sung was or whatever. And they still do that in North Korea. And Albania was the same way. They would report on these foreign communist parties that supported Albania. And the reason these parties support Albania is because I think they saw what happened in China. They saw the Cultural Revolution and more uh, not pan out the way they figured it would be. Obviously, the Cultural Revolution was a lot more, uh, let's just say, controversial than Maoists originally anticipated it to be. Uh, it was a lot more mixed re- record than they anticipated it to be. It wasn't just some one unbroken, victorious record towards communism. And another problem is Chinese foreign policy. Chinese foreign policy went towards the United States, went towards an alliance, almost an alliance with the United States against the Soviet Union, uh, to the extent that the Chinese in the mid and late 70s was saying that NATO, for example, was an objectively defensive alliance against the Soviet social imperialist. So Enver Hoxha is saying, no, this is wrong. The tree world theory is wrong. You know, allying with American imperialism is wrong. Don't do that. They're, uh, the United States and the Soviet Union are both equally bad superpowers trying to dominate the world. So a lot of Maoists that were disillusioned with China were able to switch over to Albania and say, hey, okay, well, Albania is the true Marxist-Leninist state. And Mao Zedong, oh, he sucked. He, uh, he was just a faker. Enver Hoxha is where it's at. So basically, I think that's a lot of support about if Fran Bahoja came from that sort of thing, disillusionment over China. Hmm. Um, okay, we'll do this one last here. How did he flip the Central Committee to get uh, Koji Jorge uh, killed after he'd already lost the collective leadership battle in the same body earlier in the year? Are you, do you know the name that I'm trying to pronounce yeah, there? Yeah, that's the interior minister I was talking about towards the beginning of this podcast. Right, yeah, that's uh, what I thought, yeah. It, well, so it's very simple. Uh, uh, as I said, Yugoslavia back then had the reputation as the most like extreme Stalinist state. Tito was seen as like this this reckless revolutionary that was going to start World War Three over over disputed Italian territory and things like that. So when he broke with Stalin, it was very easy because uh, even Kocha Dzozzi, even though he was pro Yugoslav, even though he was seen as the Yugoslav man, he was also pro Stalin. There was no contradiction at that point. As I said, Tito was seen as like this hardline Stalinist. So so Kocha Dzozzi was saying, yes. Stalin, oh, Stalin. And then all of a sudden, Stalin says, Tito's bad. Tito's a traitor to socialism. And then it's like, oh, my God. And then Kosciuszczotzi, he also denounces Tito. He says, oh, no, yes, Tito was bad. He's actually bad. And then he starts praising Stalin. So basically, they followed Stalin. Even though they were pro-Yugoslav or anti-Yugoslav, at the end of the day, they all supported Stalin. They all got their legitimacy from Stalin. So once Tito was announced as anti-Marxist by the Soviets, it was very easy for the Albanian officials to say, okay, well, Stalin doesn't like him. So, you know, 
Stalin and it takes precedence over Tito, obviously. So that's how he was able to do that. The Soviet Union was obviously more powerful than Yugoslavia. And it was also expected that the Yugoslavs would be overthrown, that Tito would be overthrown, because Stalin actually called for the overthrow of the T- of Tito's government in the open letter that they had there. So, yeah. All right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I think that'll do it for the questions, and and that'll do it for the episode, too. Yeah, it was great to have you on, Ismail. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, I just love, yeah, the, the detail and the – the um analysis and all that it's great so thanks and the passion i love the passion passion. i do want to repeat that uh people can go on my website ubgm.org and go to the mock section if they have questions if they want more detailed questions with sources and things like that to ask me you don't need to register you can just ask as a guest if you have any questions about albania i will answer them with sources in detail with with no rambling or the other things i've been saying here that seem unclear uh, things like that so yeah Cool. No, I think it was being great. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about that. I think it's. Uh, I think a lot of good information. So thanks. Thank you. Yeah. All right, guys. So if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like a second episode of You Can't Win Every Week, you can subscribe to our Patreon and you will get that as well as access to our Discord where you can chat with us in our community. So until next time, uh, I don't know. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>